Well, when we began our journey, um, we told you we wanted to be candid with you, honest with you, tell the truth, talked about the truth of our God, the truth of our scriptures, the truth of our Jesus. Tonight, we talk about the truth of our sin, a shared predicament we all have in common, something we all share, um, and something that um, we have no means by which to address on our own. We cannot manage it. We cannot control it. We cannot own it. All we can do at our best is cover and hide it. And yet, thanks be to God that we're not left in our predicament without a solution. As we get started here this evening, I just want to give you props for last night. Um, one, it was a little late. Two, it was stinking hot. Three, we covered a lot. I mean, a bunch of chapters of John and, and uh, trying to deal with this issue of who is Jesus. And if you recall from chapter three, we talked about Nicodemus who, who said he was a prophet or a teacher, rather, we talked about in John 4, about the woman at the well who said he was a prophet. John 5, who said he was a man. All of those um, answers of who he was were a start, but as we said last night, they were woefully insufficient. Just to clarify something, who we say Jesus is does not change who he actually is. Jesus is actually the King of Kings. He's actually the Lord of Lords. He's actually God incarnate. He's actually the Savior of the world. He's actually the one who came to seek and save the lost. And so regardless of what insufficient name you might have for Jesus, it doesn't change his nature. It doesn't change who he is. Now, interestingly enough, the rest of the story we didn't get into last night for the sake of time but Nicodemus, who said he was a teacher, ends up with Joseph of Arimathea taking the body of Jesus off the, tomb, or off the uh, cross there and burying him in a tomb. Uh, the woman at the well ends up uh, sharing Christ with most of the people in her city, defending the deity of Jesus. And in John chapter 5, if you recall, uh, we found the story of this man who was healed by the pools of Bethesda who ends up going toe-to-toe -to -toe with the religious leaders as to the sinless nature of our Christ. I share that simply to say it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And some of you, as you went to cabin time last night, had all kinds of conversations about who this Jesus is, and you may have answered in a similar fashion. Maybe he's a teacher, maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's just a man. And I just want you to know there is, there is still time for you to come to the realization that he actually is who he already is, and that is the Savior of the world, who came to save us from something very profound, and that's what we want to talk about tonight. If you have your Bibles, uh, look at John chapter 7 just for a moment. I want to cover just a couple of things in chapter 7. We're going to look at two stories, one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, a little simpler tonight, not covering as much text, uh, but we are going to jump off to some other scriptures. Anytime you're teaching the Bible or interacting with the Bible, for that matter, good rule of thumb, the scripture interprets the scripture. So if you find a text that you think says this, chances are you need to find another text that says this as well. And if only one passage says this, keep studying, you probably missed it. Because the Bible is like an integrated message system, and no biblical truth is found in only one place. You're going to find it all over. But as we uh, come to uh, chapter 7, I just want to start at verse 1 and verse 31, and I want you to notice the contrast. What Jesus did after we saw Nicodemus, the woman at the well, and the guy by the pools of Bethesda, is in chapter 6, he referred to himself as the bread of life, chapter 7, living water. And what Jesus is saying is, look, your, your real nourishment in life... 
your real refreshment in life is going to be found in Jesus and Jesus only. Now, some of you spent, are spending your time right now, maybe like I spent years of my life, trying to find nourishment and refreshment from things other than God. Here's what you're going to find if you are pursuing now things to satisfy you other than Jesus is you will always need more. Now, you can go get the greatest high money can buy. You will sober up. You can go and indulge in the greatest fantasy you've ever had. You will turn the page the next day. The sun will rise and all you will be left with is with shame and regret. There's only one who truly satisfies, one who's truly refreshing, and that's Jesus. And he bids us to follow him. Now, you can imagine following Jesus in the biblical times, much like in our day, leaves you with a bit of a contrast. Some people are about it. Look at verse 1 of chapter 7. After these things, Jesus was walking in the Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So here's some that were now opposed to him. And then if you look at verse 31, there's some that were all for it. Notice there. Many in the crowd believed him, and they were saying, when Christ comes, will he not perform more signs than those which this man has? Will he? Meaning this guy's already doing everything we've said. So you see that little dividing line. Some are against some are four. And as we head into the text here today, what we're dealing with is uh, in chapter 8 now, a woman who is caught in adultery. Now, as we get into the text, one of the things you'll hear about Jesus is he's called the Savior of the world. And you may, if you're uh, someone who's exploring the things of God, your friends may have said things to you like, oh, you need to get saved. I don't know if you've heard that before. I used to always wonder, saved from what? And what they're talking about is Jesus being the savior of the world and getting saved from the mastery of indwelling sin. And what we see in this chapter is a pretty interesting expression of what sin looks like from a woman in verses 2 and following of chapter 8 now that's caught in adultery. It says, early in the morning, Jesus came again into the temple. So we have a location. He's in the temple. When you hear temple, by the way, it doesn't necessarily mean the building. The Temple Mount was like a, I want to say it was like 46 acres. It's this massive structure. So he's going up there to teach, which is what most teachers did. So he's hanging out, and he's teaching, and all of the people came to him. And so he sat down and began to teach them. So he's just kind of holding court. And he's just teaching, and he's sharing, and, and the crowds are gathering. And then comes verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes um, are kind of the religious, um, I mentioned the Pharisees, like the, the religious legalists of the day, the scribes were like the attorneys whose specialty was to study the Bible, and they and the Pharisees worked very closely together, and they bring a woman who in verse 3 is um, caught in adultery, and they placed her in their midst. And so they bring this girl, interrupt Jesus' teaching, and bring this woman now before him. But it gets uh, worse. Verse 4, um, this woman... Um, it says that they caught her in the very act of adultery. And it says the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman, so what say you? So they bring this woman, not because they want justice for a woman who committed adultery. They bring this woman before Jesus to trap him. Now, I have a lot of questions as I read this text. First of all, how did you know she was committing adultery? Were you watching? Because that's creepy. Second, where's the guy? Because he's not here, so this just reeks of some sort of setup. Um, and third, you caught her in the very act. Is she even dressed? Is she clothed or covered 
at all. We don't know, but what we do get the feeling is that this is a very, as you can imagine, very shameful moment for this woman as she now stands before Jesus in whatever state she's in. And they want to know, so what do you say? The Bible says um, that we should stone such a woman. Well, they're technically right in that regard. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22 says this, if a man is found lying with a wife of another man, both of them shall die. And the man, shall lay, uh, the man who lay with a woman and the woman shall both die to purge the evil from Israel. Dude, that is hardcore. Like this guy has an affair and you just bring him like to church and then you kill them both. That would certainly end affairs. I think people would think twice about it, right? It shows you how committed God is to the family and to marriage here. Um, but what's interesting, so they're technically right, but in verse 6, they're saying it not with a desire to be godly. They're saying it to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, back to our story, Jesus is stuck in a little bit of a dilemma because if he lets the woman go, then he's violating the law. And he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. He has to hold perfectly to the Bible, right? But if he punishes this girl and allows them to kill her, then he's going to be perceived as being a, a tyrant and, and in some ways harsh and punitive. And so Jesus does something very Jesus-like. If you ever notice, Jesus doesn't typically do what you would expect someone to do. And in verse 6, it continues. It just says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, what are you wondering? What did he write? There's a thousand things in the Bible, by the way, that I just, I want a little more info. Like, what, what, he, what did he write? We don't know. We have no idea what he wrote. The Bible gives us no clue. I'm curious, did he write maybe the name of the guy that was conveniently missing? Like, maybe their buddy? I don't know. Uh, did he write their own sins? Like, of the people that were there, and they're like, oh, man, he's talking about me. Um, did he write names of women that they had had affairs with? I don't know. Um, did he write Deuteronomy 19? Deuteronomy 19, by the way, is a passage in the law of God about bearing a, a false witness. The Bible calls it a malicious witness. And it says, look, if you bring somebody to a religious trial, you accuse them of something, um, but you accuse them falsely, which means you're making it up, whatever punishment would be dealt to them would go to you. So in this case, if for some reason uh, these men had set this thing up, then death would come upon them. It kind of doesn't matter what he wrote, but what's interesting to me is that whatever he wrote, it took the attention off of her. See, as you read the story of John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, did you see Jesus interacting with a lot of respect, a lot of value, a lot of dignity, giving dignity and honor to a woman who was of less than reputable character? Here he is, and a woman caught in the very act of adultery maybe clothed, maybe not, he's writing on the ground, and every eye is now focused on what he's writing, not on her. I, I just think it gives you a little heart of who Jesus uh, really is. And in verse 7, though, they press him, and they continued to ask him, and he, he stood up and he said to them, look, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw the stone at her which is his way of saying that the law of God says that adultery should be punishable by death. And I don't disagree with that. And so if you are without sin, then why don't you go ahead and throw the stone at her? 
And then again in verse 8, he bends down on the ground and begins to write again. Now, again, whatever he wrote, whatever they saw, uh, the results now are undeniable. When they heard it, verse 9, they went away one by one, beginning with the older one. Now, that's interesting. Why do you think the older one left first? Maybe more time to live downwind of themselves, no question. More time to do stupid things. There's a self-awareness that comes with maturity to where we look in the mirror and we see ourselves more accurately. And you just kind of wonder, did the older man go, ooh, he got me. Because there's not a guy in that room or on that temple mount that day, scribe or Pharisee alike, who was without sin. And so sure enough, beginning with the oldest, they began to walk away. And so Jesus now, in verse 9, is left alone with the woman standing before him. And so Jesus just simply stood up and um, maybe for the first time looked at the woman. We don't know. But he, he now stands up and he addresses this woman and he says, woman, where are they? Almost like he was lost in his own thoughts, not just oblivious to what's happening around. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, my Lord. And Jesus says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now, Jesus has a very unique ability to hold the tension of grace and truth. Uh, Jesus is, um, is one who shows us more grace than we deserve and yet invites us out of our old life. Um, and in this text, it's in perfect display. D he says, does no one condemn you? She says, no one, my Lord. He says, well, then neither do I. Go and from now on, sin no more. So he both acknowledged that she had sinned and yet showed her incredible respect in the process. Go now and sin no more. Now, this is the heart of our God, and you can just imagine what a moment of the grace of God being put on display. Go now and sin no more. Let's talk a little bit then about sin. What, what is sin? Um, he told the accusers, he who is without sin, throw the first stone. No one threw a stone, and he told the woman, go and sin no more. The term sin, just by way of definition, um, isn't usually defined by an old archery term that means to miss the mark, trying to hit the bullseye. Instead, you shoot the wall, you've sinned, you've missed the mark. It's often defined, too, by um, a category of sins of omission, meaning the things that um, you're supposed to do but you don't, and then the sins of commission, the things that you're not supposed to do but you do. Um, but kind of simpler than that, let me sort of pull back a little bit. In many ways, the real root issue of sin is doing life without God. So replay the tapes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When Adam and Eve, um, Eve sees the fruit, and if you remember, she sees that it's a delight to the eyes, that it uh, looks like it's pleasing to eat, and that it's able to make her wise, and she, she shifts from obedience to God to rationale. And she does life in that moment on her own. Some call it in autonomy, you might call it in the flesh. And in a sense, that's the root issue of sin, is to do life without God. Now, here's the problem with that. Romans 8 tells us that... Um, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if we are doing life on our own, of our own power, without God, in the flesh, we cannot please God. And there's really two operating systems for a person. You are either in the flesh or you are in the spirit. 
Those who are in the spirit, like Jesus said to Nicodemus, are those who have been born again, and we live as followers of Jesus under a different operating system I'm gonna talk a lot about on Friday night. But to be in the flesh is to be apart from Jesus and to be doing life on your own, in your own power, with what seems right to you. That is flesh, that is autonomy, that is sin. Now, I don't say that to judge you, by the way, if that happens to describe you. Some of you are here, you're exploring the gospel, you've never maybe trusted Christ, but you're, you're here. And so I don't say that to judge you, but truth be told, I want you to know the very situation that we're dealing with. And in some ways, I just want to let you know, it's not totally your fault, because sin is not just what you do, you're, you're born in it. In fact, uh, Scripture is going to tell us that from Genesis 3 moving forward, we actually are born inherited with inherited sin. Some of you may have noticed that the, the older you get, the more you look like your mom or your dad, because you, you, in, you kind of were, were their offspring, so to speak, and so you, you kind of inherit their characteristics and traits. Well, if you trace it all the way back to Genesis, we're all from Adam and Eve. All of hum, the human race comes from them. And so what happens is we actually are born sinners. So it's not even that you did anything. It's like you're just born. You're just a human and the Bible tells us that you're brought forth in sin and conceived in iniquity. So we are sinners, all of us, by both nature and deed. So, so we're born sinners, and we also do sinful things. Romans 7 uh, tells us in verse 18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that's in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. So we are sinners by deed and by nature. And uh, some of you will say, yeah, 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 but I, I mean, I've seen some people do stupid stuff, and I'm not like that. I mean, I'm, I'm better than that. Well, the book of Isaiah just reminds us of, of the comparison game. We, we tend to compare, like, somehow God grades on a curve, and, like, we're on the front end of the class, so we're going to get an A. Um, but God doesn't grade on a curve. It's really more pass-fail. And as was said in the spoken word there, that the, uh, the way you pass this, this class, the way you can do life and not need Jesus at all is just very simple, just never sin. But we're both born in it and we do it very naturally. And Isaiah says this, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like filthy garments and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Well, let's ask a question. When we talk about sin, how bad is it? Like how serious is it? Is it just that some of us are more morally corrupt than others? And, and if we just read enough, enough self-help books, if we just tried to be better, if we just tried to do good, would that, would that help it? But the Bible actually says that, that we're not just morally corrupt, like not as good as others. We're actually dead, spiritually dead. See, from the Garden of Eden, we inherit not only physical death, but spiritual death, which means there's a separation from God. And in fact, Ephesians puts it this way in Ephesians 2. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, listen to this, um, we all formerly lived in the lusts of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. And you say, whoa, whoa, whoa. What do you mean, children of wrath? Well, God is holy, 
And God cannot look upon sin with favor. And so we, if we are sinful apart from Christ, if we are in the flesh, we are considered enemies of God, children of wrath, those dead in our transgressions. And you're like, dude, this is dark. Yes, there's good news in the gospel. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But the gospel being good news doesn't make sense. It's not truly good until you understand the bad news and the moral predicament that we are in as a human race. Well, who is impacted by this sin? The answer is all of us, every single one of us. Whether you dropped out of high school or whether you're summa cum laude, it doesn't matter, all of us. The Bible says all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that there's none who seeks for God, not even one. First John tells us plainly that if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Like, look, we have a lot of things that are like different, okay? Some people are wearing glasses, some people have the big hair, some people shaved head, you know, some people are left-handed, some people are right-handed. One thing we all have in common is we have a human condition called sin that there is no earthly medication for. There is nothing that will remedy it. Oh, sure, you can numb it. You can medicate it. You can pursue to indulge, to try to assuage the feelings of guilt and shame, but you will never deal with the issue. It will never fully be eradicated, and it permeates everything. If you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1 for a moment. I want to just walk you through, what does it then look like, this, this life lived in sin? I mean, you're living your own life, but what does the Bible say? Um, this life lived in sin. Romans 1, I want to just read verses 18 and following. It's a wonderful picture from the Apostle Paul, who wrote almost two-thirds of your New Testament, writes it to the church in Rome, thus the name. And in Romans 1, starting in verse 18, he says this. This is life in the flesh, life in sin, life without Christ, this is what naturally comes. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. These are people who have heard the truth, but they hold it down. They reject it. They do not submit to the Bible. They push away the Bible. They disregard the Bible. He says in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. If you remember the first morning we met, I talked about God revealing himself in nature. I said nature, natural revelation or creation, is sufficient to condemn but not to save. Which means you're, you're never, you could be a tree hugger all you want, it will not deal with sin. Uh, but when you look at creation, it shows you that, that there is a creator and therefore we are without excuse. Now, verse 21. For even though they knew about God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but instead became futile in their speculations and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You know what I call that? Freshman psychology class. When you go to college... And, or if you go to college, and you tell your professor that you're a Christian, they will give you the condescending pat on the head, and then they will profess to be wise even though they are fools. And here's what they do. They exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of a corruptible man or a bird of a, or a four-footed animal or a crawling creature. What does that mean? They reject the worship of God, and they worship his creation. They worship celebrities, 
They worship things. They worship things that were created, not the creator. And therefore, verse 24, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. It's not that they're forced to to do anything. It's that God says, man, without me, there is no moral check in your life. There is no moral compass to show you where true north is. If you really want to indulge, indulge in life apart from God, go ahead That's what's going to happen. And if you'll notice, it comes naturally that their bodies are dishonored among them. One of the first things that happens is idolatry. We worship the created. The second thing that happens is a perversion of sexuality. So one of the reasons I did a breakout on relationships and then we had a a breakout on um, sexual purity is because it is an issue of the flesh that everyone is going to struggle with to some degree or another. Verse 25, it goes on. For they exchanged now the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And he says, now for this reason, God gave them over to now degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandoned the natural function for the woman and burned their desire towards one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own person the due penalty of their error. What does that mean? It means exactly what you think it means. That God's design would be that men and women who are created by God with gender connected to biological sex, men and women, would marry men and women. So it wouldn't be men with men or women with women. That's outside of God's design. But when you reject God and there is no plumb line of truth in your life and you do what feels right to you, there are no boundaries. There is no appropriate or inappropriate. There's no source of truth there. If the truth is what you feel in your heart, God help us. Because if we are in the flesh, we are capable of all kinds of awful And when you watch what's happening in our culture, and you know it better than most, this is a crazy culture right now, especially as it it, um, relates to sexuality. And, And it's all a result of life without God. If there is no God, then your driving force is you and your passions. Verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which were not proper, being filled with unrighteousness wickedness, greed, envy, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, I know it's a long list, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. When's the last time you watched the news or read a news article? Because I'm pretty sure all of this is there. We are living in a world right now that without God, is literally like a truck going downhill with no brakes, morally. And I say that because it's true, and I want you to know that. Well, it finishes with this, and it says, and although they knew the ordinances of God, which means they knew about them, and that those who practice such things are worthy of death, listen to this, not only do they do them, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Do you see that? Not only do they do them, but they're, they're wooing people to do it with them. They're rallying a tribe. I mean, we just came off of Pride Month in June. Now, let me just be honest. 
There's very few things that are more difficult for someone to process than their sexuality. So understand grace in what I'm saying here, that we need to talk about that. We need to talk about discipleship. What does Jesus want for us? How do we process how we feel? That being said, every single business everywhere threw up pride flags. Why? Because they want to give hearty approval to those who do those things. Because our culture has not only rejected the word of God, they've embraced anything that's contrary to the word of God and are inviting others to follow along with them. So when we're talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, you need to know it's not easy to follow Jesus. It's hard. Because he's going to invite us to live in a manner that's countercultural, literally. To live in a manner with our sexuality that's countercultural. By the way, there's one time in your Bible, speaking of sexuality, where it says this is the will of God for your life. It says this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of us learn how to possess our own vessels in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like those who don't know God. And so we're invited as followers of Jesus to live countercultural, but without the gospel, if we are in the flesh, that's what comes. So... Let me just ask you a question as we're processing this a little bit. Um, what do you see in the world around you? Do you see spirit of God, biblical truth, or do you see flesh? When you're online, do you see biblical truth or do you see flesh? Uh, when you're on your campus, do you see biblical truth or do you see flesh? When you're at a party on a Friday night, do you see biblical truth or do you see flesh? When you're snapping with your friends, is it biblical truth or is it flesh? And the reality is, friends, we need to acknowledge that flesh is everywhere. Sin is everywhere. So what are the consequences of this sin? Well, the wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Separation from God. Physical brokenness. Separation from God. Spiritual brokenness. And uh, what we tend to do then is, without Jesus, we turn to sin management and there are two kind of ways that we manage sin, and maybe you can relate to one of these ways. One is called the impulsive person. This is the person who, again, doesn't know Jesus. They're in the flesh, um, and they're impulsive, which, which just means they're indulgent. They're just like, I don't know, something's wrong, but I'm going to fill it with this and fill it with that and fill it with that. I'm going to try that drug. I'm going to try that drink. I'm going to try that relationship. I'm going to try anything. I'm just trying to fill that way, and they're just indulgent because they're trying in many ways to medicate the issue that's inside. They know something's wrong. They know something's broken. They know there's gotta be a better way. By the way, have you ever noticed in a relationship, I mentioned this in our little seminar that we did, if you're in a relationship, they get sexual. Have you ever noticed that once you get sexual, everything changes? It just kinda is different? You ever wondered why? Like, like how many of you, are, or maybe how many of you uh, have friends who are in a relationship with somebody and then it got sexual and then everything got weird? And then they broke up. You're like, what just happened? What happened is they indulged the flesh, and they, they thought that would solve the issue, but it didn't, and so they moved on to find something else. The other way we manage sin is not being impulsive but compulsive. These are the good people. These are the people who are like, I need to be good. I need to do right. I need to go to church. They don't know Jesus, but I need to go to church because that's a good thing. I need to do what's right. They're compulsive. You remember the story of the prodigal son? Story of the prodigal son is there's an impulsive son who runs away, tells the father I want his inheritance, runs away, squanders it in Vegas on prostitutes, and then comes back home 
wishing to be the father's slave. The older son is the compulsive son who's always done what's right. And the story is not about the prodigal son, but the prodigal God who loves both trying to manage sin in the flesh. And so if the wages of sin is death, then how are we to deal with the human predicament of sin? If it's pervasive, if it's shared in common with all of us, if there's nothing we can do to remedy it, if all at our best we could do is manage it, what's the solution? The solution is simply this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The only way to move from the flesh to the spirit, like Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born again. Something has to happen. I've mentioned that before, but I want to stress it again. Something has to happen. You don't simply agree with concepts about Jesus. Something has to happen. We're going to talk tomorrow in detail about what happens. How is it that in Christ I could be a new creature? How is it that in Christ I could no longer be flesh, but I can be spirit? I can be filled with the spirit. I can live for God because of his grace in my life. We'll deal with that tomorrow. Flip just for a second as we close to chapter 9. We'll start in verse 35, and I'll close with this. John chapter 9 is a great story about a man born blind. And Jesus heals this guy. And uh, <laughs> this guy gets confronted by the religious leaders, because sure enough, Jesus is you know, continuing to heal on the Sabbath and driving everybody crazy. And, uh, and this, this guy's having like interaction with Jesus about whether or not Jesus is a sinner, because sinners can't do these things. And this guy's like, look, dude, all I know is I was blind and, and now I can see. And so there's this blindness and seeing thing that's sort of the contrast that has to do with sin, and I'll, I'll explain it here in a second. If you look at verse 35, Jesus heard that they had now kicked this guy out. By the way, this guy's own parents sold him out. Like the religious leaders call this dude's parents in, like, is this your son? Was he born blind? They're like, look, I don't want to talk about it, okay? So it's a really interesting situation. Read it maybe at a later time. But, but they kick this guy out, and Jesus hears about it and goes and finds him. And he asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a messianic title from Daniel. Do you believe that I am the Savior? And this guy says, well, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who's talking to you right now. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Yes, I do. Who is he? I'm the guy. Okay. Now, he says, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus says, for judgment I've come into this world, so that those who do not see may see I've come into this world so that those who are blind, they do not see, meaning they, they don't, they're, not, they're not righteous, they, they recognize they're blind, they recognize their issues, they know there's a problem, they know there's something wrong that they might see, and that those who think they already see, meaning they think they're righteous, they think they have it right, they think they've got a relationship, you know, they think they're doing religious things, they might realize that they are blind. And we know that's what Jesus means when he says it because of verse 40. Because the Pharisees are listening, and they realize this was a bit of a dig. The Pharisees who were with him heard him and says, hey, 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 we're not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And so I just want to close by asking you a question. Are you a person 
who is blind, or are you a person who thinks you can see? Are you a person who is blind, meaning you recognize something's wrong? Something in me is off, and and it's deeper than anything I've ever known. Something inherently is wrong with me, and you're blind. Do you you see that, or do you think you see? Meaning, I, I think I'm doing fine. I don't have anything to worry about. I'm doing okay. I'm not really worried about God. We're fine. You don't know Jesus, but you're saying, I I think I've got this figured out. And and friend, the the answer to that question is critical. Because if you think you see, then there's no hope. Because you've already got it figured out. You don't need Jesus because you've already become your own functional savior. So congratulations. You're going to find that you're a very ineffective savior because you're not the creator, you're the created you're going to find that you're a very ineffective savior because you can't deal with the own issue of your own issue of sin. You're going to find that you're a very ineffective savior because uh, there is nothing you can do in your flesh to please God. However, if you acknowledge that you're blind and you go, I don't know what it is, but there is something wrong and I do need to deal with it and I don't know quite where to turn, good news for you because Jesus came to seek and save the lost and if you can acknowledge that's your condition, then you can find hope in the gospel. Amen? Let's pray, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Father, I thank you for your word. It is truth, but boy, it punches us in the face. But yet, God, we we are thankful that truth spoken in love can bring healing. And so, Father, as we deal with our own sin, as we all live downwind of ourself, and we all have it, even in Christ, there are those fleshly moments where we choose to live the old life, Lord, could we just turn to you in grace and love and feel your acceptance as you encourage us to be discipled to maturity, but for our friends who are in the flesh with no thought of you, may their hearts even be stirred now to realize that's no way to do life. Instead, you've invited us to come to you all who are weary and heavy laden that you would give us rest, that we could take your yoke upon us and learn from you for you are gentle and humble in heart and in you we will find rest for our souls. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.